Welcome to the Book a Week podcast, jointly hosted by the SEPT University Library and the Center for Research on Architecture and Urbanism. Welcome to this episode of Book a Week podcast. I am Arul Paul. I am an architect and associate professor at the Nite Institute of Architecture, Mangalore. My research lies in the intersection between the built environment, queer theory, and media studies. I use history and theory as a lens to critically examine pedagogy as it evolves in response to new advances and challenges, and to contribute to academia, research, writing, and practice. Today, I'm talking to Gautam Ban, author of *In the Public's Interests*. evictions citizenship and inequality in contemporary delhi as part of the school of human development at iihs gautam teaches researches and writes on the politics of urban poverty and inequality urban and planning theory housing and identity and social practice he anchors the role of iihs as a national resource center with the ministry of housing and urban poverty alleviation and is part of iih's work in affordable housing policy and practice he has been an active part of urban social movements on sexuality as well as housing rights and currently advises and trains governmental agencies at local state and national levels on housing policy he is the author of several books and compiled volumes in addition to numerous academic articles welcome gautam pleasure to be here thank you for having me Your book starts by painting a picture of what life might have been for the inhabitants of the bastis in Delhi before they were demolished. Uh, when a basti such as Pushta is demolished, its inhabitants evicted and left destitute. What is going on here from a legal standpoint? Are any of these people's rights being violated, and if so, by whom? So I think one of the things to understand is that. when you think of the basti right it is a form of inhabiting and settling particularly in cities of the south where you have you you grow in what uh, latin american urbanist teresa caldera called intention with the formal logics of property law and planning and i really like this idea of tension right because a basti is not illegal in a simple way it's not a secret it's not like it's not like a crime that has been committed everyone knows bastis in our cities we know them as vibrant neighborhoods we've seen them we've walked by them so in a way it is not an easy question of legal illegal right it is this tension with these official logics of law property and planning yes the land is used and therefore there are claims to it but it is not owned in title yes it's not land that is owned in a particular way but it's public land and people have a claim to that public land as members of the public yes it's not on the plan but it's not exactly in violation of the use right so there are all these tensions and negotiations and one thing about the basti to understand is that a basti is time more than anything else it is time it is housing that is built incrementally over time and during that time it embodies the entire history of that place political negotiation struggle um, voting patterns changing governments consolidation material practices houses are built slowly land is infilled slowly work is done children are born 
So a basti, more than a built environment or a housing unit, a basti is literally time embedded in this material form of housing as equivalent to the living of a life. So you can't actually separate all those layers from that history from the built environment. Now an eviction, an eviction takes this notion of a basti and says, you know what, this is an encroachment. This is a violation of property ownership. This is trespassing. This is atikraman, right? That word in Hindi. It takes and flattens the basti into the single dimension of its built environment and its relationship to property law. That's it. Nothing else counts. The claims of vulnerability, citizenship, formal citizenship, belonging, aesthetics, uh, labor, investment, uh, identity cards, all the money people paid over time, the electricity meters, the formal connections, all of those parts of life that make a house into housing. Okay? The uh, the, the eviction disrespects and misrecognizes it. It flattens the basti. It makes it unidimensional. It says, no, this is a question of law. You're either legal by property because you own it or not. So what happens? This is the story of citizenship only by property ownership, legal presence only by property ownership. Right? And in many ways, it essentially, but this now it's interesting that the Sarkar cannot reduce the basti like this because the sarkar is entangled in that negotiation with the basti. It built that basti along with the court. The adalat, however, does not have that negotiation. It has no history of conversation with the basti. So it is able to view it as this singular lens of saying, in law, either it's property or not. Right? There is no scope for those layers. But of course, law also has never been able to be so black and white. So over the time, judges have found ways to say, yes, but you've been here for so long and not for. So we have this thing called the cutoff date, right? Now, what is a cutoff date? It says if you've been here before 2015, then you're entitled to things, but not after. Now, here, even law is realizing there are no clear lines, right? It's not, you can never say in law, well, if you evaded this law before 2015, it's okay, but not after 2015. But you have to do this because there's no easy violation. There is a tension. Those claims are real. So in a sense, the basti is a set of competing claims based on an imagination of rights that draw from both spatial rights to be in the city, contributory rights, we built this basti, we invested in it, economic rights, this is our money, our labor, our sweat, but also rights to broader constitutional protections. Right? This is public land, we are the public. This is a welfare state, we are the poor. Right? So there are a mix of claims between entitlements, claims, rights, belonging, both legal and affective, both moral and political, that the basti makes of the city. And a moment of eviction, those rights are refused. And one imagination of the basti, its relationship to formal property title, becomes the dominant imagination of that basti. So it is a reduction, it's a narrowing, it's an evasion of rights claims, it's a refusal of rights claims. It absolutely, if you look at it from that way, is both a reduction and an act of erasure, right? because you are refusing the multiple claims the Basti is making, that the Sarkar has always acknowledged, right? that the law acknowledges when it has differential cutoff dates, etc. And you reduce all of that. So I've always thought of the act of eviction when it comes from the court, not just as a violation of rights. It absolutely is that. But it is also a reduction and narrowing of the rights claims to refuse a set of rights claims and to reduce them to a singular logic of property ownership. 
and legality by propaganda. Well, um, cities in India around the world actually are sort of built on the backs of the working class. And one would assume that there are laws that would protect their interests. Um, this brings me to, um, to our next question. Uh, this is a question that you yourself ask in the introduction to your book. What, in your opinion, is the role of the judiciary and the relationship between law and urbanism in cities of the global south? In 10 words or less, yeah. So, you know, it's, you know, there's a, when I was first writing an early draft of the book, I wanted to make a framing argument about something I understood as judicial urbanism. And I wanted to do it because, you know, I was writing about Delhi. And at that point in Delhi, it felt like every major structural change in the city was coming from courts. The conversion of all public transport to CNG came from courts. The removal of all industries uh, came from courts. The environmental jurisdiction was expanding. The, you know, the ceiling of commercial shops and mixed-use areas in violation of the norm came from courts. The evictions came from courts. So whether it was environmental decisions or planning decisions, they were all coming from the courts, right? And at some point it felt, and I remember interviewing a senior planner from the DDA, who I asked him, what do you think of when you make the master plan? What's on your mind? And he said to me, I want to make a plan that is court-proof. And I thought it was so striking, right? That it was not a vision for the city. I had every empathy with this man. Because he basically said, this is the actually place which has become the most powerful arbiter of whether or not my plan has a chance. Right? And I think that it was at that time where, and this is the same time, remember, that the debates about the courts in every sphere were happening. Judicial activism, judicial overreach, the break of separation of powers, PIL governance, judiciary acting as government. These debates were rife everywhere. It was not just in, in the urban sphere. And so I think for me, one of the questions between law and urbanism was very much what changes when decisions about urban governance are made through the logics of law, right? but also through the institutions of the Adalat versus the Sarkar. And what does it change about democratic practice? What does it change about accountability? I wrote one of the chapters in the book called You Can't Just Walk Into the Court. Because for urban social movements, Fighting the Sarkar was history, technique. It was the primary call. Fighting the Adalat did not have the same. How do you fight the Adalat? You appeal. You don't gherao, you don't chakka jam, right? You don't, you, don't, you don't have techniques of democratic accountability with the court. But at the same time, there was a reverence for the court. And I think this was a reverence felt more broadly in Indian society at that point, that here is the one institution who we trust. And so there is, you know, there are the anthropologists, um, the Komarovs, Suzanne, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the Komarovs, who wrote a book in a book called Theory from the South about this idea of what they call lawfare. And they wrote that particularly in the South, the law takes on disproportionate importance because of the cracks and weaknesses in state institutions on the executive side. Right? So if one part of what we've understood is the Southern context is about the institutional difficulties of governance and administration, the complexities of inequality. In many parts of our history in India, we have turned to the law to save us, the golden age of PIL jurisprudence. You know, and sometimes it has, and sometimes it hasn't. The judiciary is a very complex space, but certainly post the emergency, 
the, the rise of PIR jurisprudence created a history of the sense of what the Supreme Court called itself the last resort of the bewildered and the oppressed, direct quote from a post-emergency PIR judgment. The court invited us in to treat it this way, right? And the problem then is, but when the court starts to govern, it doesn't have the same abilities, institutional mechanisms to govern. Governance is about balancing trade-offs of polycentric issues and claims. It is not about right and wrong in the way the law thinks. It is not about, a, you know, it is a very different, a, gov a governance decision can balance competing interests. A legal decision is meant to find the correct interpretation of the law. Now, of course, within PIRs, we have hopelessly confused this. And if you read Anush Bhavanya's work on the public interest, he will say PIRs have always, fundamentally, this is a problem in their DNA. It's not about changing ideology or politics. It is the, it is the notion of public litigation itself. And I agree with a lot of his reading. But I think there's no question that not just in India, but in Southern cities, the law plays a disproportionate institutional role. Um, and it plays a governance role that is hugely important. And I think a lot of it is because precisely that it is meant to play a disproportionate role with in mediating the relationships between the citizen and the sarkar, which as we know in India can be rocky at best. Um, so that is why so many of us, whether we love it or hate it, find ourselves back at the court, because where else will you go? Yes, and your, I, I think your book gets into, you know, the idea of a PIL in, in, you know, a lot of detail and brings out this very insidious nature of how, you know, provisions that were intended to help are later turned against the very people that they were intended to support. And uh, one of the arguments uh, in court during the demolition of the Pushta Basti, according to your book, is that the government was not diligent in being able to create affordable housing. And given you know, the current rates of migration into Indian cities, is it fair to expect the government to take up the responsibility then of housing all its citizens? So I think, I think the way to think about it is this. We argue that the Basti is the result of a structural failure of not just the state, but also the market. And I think this is very important. The idea is not here to say that you that a basti is a result only of state failure. That would be an unreasonable thing to say, right? But what we said is that the basti results as a particular result of being unable to find adequate housing that is also affordable and legal. So when the, when, the, when the technical committee of the planning commission, um, what's called the Kundu committee, was meant to estimate housing shortage in India, they said something very nice about what India's housing question really is. They said the problem in India is this. Adequate housing is unaffordable and affordable housing is inadequate. That's your game. Now, the thing you have to add is affordable housing is not just inadequate, it's also in tension with the official logics of law, property, and land. So it's inadequate, not just materially, it's also inadequate legally. And therefore, we're constantly fighting this tension because we have neither created markets that are able to create enough affordable stock for the workers who have built our cities, 
nor has the state filled in that stock, right? So you, it is a combination of state and market failure. And the reason why I think it's important to think of those two is that I don't believe, like a lot of political economists, that markets simply exist. Markets have to be created, right? So if you create an affordable housing market, you have to protect that market. Otherwise, developers will do exactly what they have done today in Delhi, which is overbuild at the upper end and underbuild at the lower end. And so if you look at Delhi's, I saw a Knight and Frank report the other day, that 4% of Delhi's formal housing stock is under 25 lakhs. 4%. If 4% of the housing stock is under 25 lakhs and 60% of the city makes less than 8 lakhs per annum, right? you have a structural mismatch in your land and housing market. Now, if this is the case, the Basti is an inevitable expression of this structural mismatch. And I also want to say it is not just the Basti. In Delhi, it is equally the unauthorized colony. It is equally the urban village extension areas. It is equally the outcrops of the resettlement colonies, right? The new draft master plan is out in Delhi. Its own analysis says that 55% of Delhi lives in unplanned built environments. Now, the question I'm asking here is, if half the city lives in unplanned built environments, what is the plan? Why is the planned neighborhood the norm? Right? If, if three out of every four people violate the law, it is not the people that are wrong, it is the law. So therefore, the question is that if the majority of the city has built outside, why the regularization of unauthorized colonies and the eviction of the... This differentiation is what I'm pointing out to. We have seen a history of state and market failure in the housing market in Delhi. We have an absolutely broken housing market. It is broken for middle-class households, you let alone for the major, urban majority of workers. Now, why has that come? Why do we have an overbuilt vacancy supply of apartments starting from 50 lakhs up? So we also in Delhi have this bizarre thing, like in all urban India, Kundu Committee report, 18 million uh, housing shortage, 9 million vacant flats. Why do you have 9 million vacant flats? because you're overbuilding in an unregulated market that is based on speculation as opposed to actually housing, right? And we have to, now every country in the world grapples with this and they intervene, right? Brazil taxes vacancy, it reserves land. Spain makes you give 50% of new private to low-income housing. Bombay makes you return 20% of new private development land for reallocation. So every city and every land market regulates its market to push against the market's hoarding at the upper end and make the market more inclusive. So I, when I say it's state failure, I don't mean the state did not build everything and it should have. That's one version of state responsibility. I also mean the state did not regulate the land and housing market to ensure equity the way it should have. Right? And so therefore, now Delhi, of course, has a particular history because the DDA said, stop all developers, we'll rationalize all the land, we will build HIG, MIG, LIG, EWR. So the claim that the state should provide housing across income classes is not my claim. It is the claim of the DDA. It is a claim of, for 30 years, that is what they said. They stopped private developers from building in Delhi and said, we'll build it. Then they underbuilt for 30 years. So I am wary of state failure, but I am equally wary of market failure. And I think that too often in our discussions, we have discussions on, you know, should this be privatized or should this be run by the state? That's not the question to ask. The question is, how do we protect from state capture and failure on one end and market capture and failure on the other? 
And the truth is the only affordable, viable housing stock built at scale in Delhi has been built by people and has been built through the business. And if they had not built that stock, your city would not exist, let alone function. Now to criminalize them for doing what you should have done, to me is a great perversity um, of both natural justice, but also any actual urban development logic. You should be grateful. But actually you are, because that's why in the middle you give Bijli connection, you give voter ID, you give recognition. And this is derided often in urban studies as populism, clientelism. I don't buy this. This is actually democratic political negotiation. This is the actual form of democratic practice. And that, that, that those negotiations occur is a solid positive good thing. And I think they should be. So I think it's a really important way to think then about the thinking about the way in which one takes the possibility of the Basti as the solution to our housing problem, not the housing problem to be solved. And I think that's the distinction we need to make. Well said, Dathan. I, I wonder, is it, is, it, is it democracy? Is it neoliberalism? Is it a mix of the two? What is it, in your opinion, that is producing or magnifying all these inequalities that we see in the city? Uh, it's a tough question. I think, I think, you know, there's a couple of ways to come at it. I do, I've never quite been certain of this term neoliberalism. I find that it, I find that it, its histories are not quite ours. It's like, I understand neoliberalism in the context of the UK, where you had a large public municipal housing stock that got sold. You know, in our context, that public housing stock was never built, right? The Basti was not built by the state. So it's not like this, we privatized the Basti, it was always outside the state. But what has certainly changed is that the state earlier and society, the social compact, let me say, recognize the claim of the Basti as legitimate. You are workers, you are needed, you are citizens, you are, and you are in need for assistance, right? So the claim to welfare, the claim to rights was recognized. That social contract existed. I think that the where that neoliberal analysis does work for me is as a political philosophy to a shift in the social contract, to a shift in what we owe each other as citizens and what the state owes us as citizens. This shift, I feel, I feel a new ethic around questions of inequality where we have, where the early imaginations of the newly independent Indian state, that post-colonial imagination that invited a claim to participation. You know, when Partha Chatterjee wrote Politics of the Governed, he had that one chapter where it was called, Our Indian Cities, Have Indian Cities Become Bourgeois at Last? And I think what he was trying, I always interpreted that question as asking, has finally the ethic of inequality changed for us that inequality is no longer to be derided or defended, but naturalized actually as an expression of merit, of return to success, of, you know, that as an inevitable part of development and growth. We have, we have actually begun politically and ethically to accept inequality as an acceptable condition. So I see in a lot of contemporary urban India, a whole set of people who will say, no one should be destitute. No one should be hungry. Now, 
the minute our bar is at destitution and poverty as opposed to equity and inequality we have shifted politically in our thinking you know so no one in india will say people should be hungry this is that but if you talked about redistribution that they should have equal opportunity to thrive and to grow then we have become very hesitant in this it is not the job of right so it's so i i do feel that what has happened in the reasons why we have begun to and this you know once you begin to think about cities in this way outcomes become acceptable right i think certain forms of growth certain forms of development become so dominant in our imagination and i do think i see that shift in us as a people i don't think there's anything particular about urban here i i see that shift in us socially um and i think that many debates across many places reflect this and cities are no exception and so the fact that you can you can see relentless evictions of bastis in delhi and not have any government fall not have any newspaper screen not have you know bull let me just let me say this way bulldozers run through people's homes and they doesn't make the newspaper there is a there is a normalization then of a certain kind of winners and losers kind of game that we have internalized we have and that i definitely feel has changed in our polity i think in the last 15 to 20 years and i i think it is i think it 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 concerns me in many ways because i think that if we do not even have a shared moral horizon about getting beyond bpl and poverty lines and starvation to thriving and flourishing and growth and really expanding opportunities for that movement i think it's then i think it really makes it difficult to think then why would policies get translate that why would schemes and programs do it they don't it's not the ethic they're looking for right and i think that in many places i think the other thing that's really important to me which i sense a lot i think that there is particularly within the elite a real misrecognition of the actual circumstances of everyday life in our cities it really astounds me actually in the way life pools of information have broken so deeply that you know when covid happened this year and the migrants started walking on highways when when folks started lining up for public distribution of food in these numbers a lot of people spoke to me and said how how are so many people so close to hunger in delhi because in the last 20 years we have sold ourselves the story of our ascension and our rise and of course india has grown in the last 20 years of course poverty has decreased i am not one to decry that change but at the same time we misrecognize how unequal we really are how widespread our urban vulnerability really is there's a one of the you know i've been writing a lot about this question of southern urbanism recently and the reason with one of the things that really provokes me about it is this idea of the south which was defined by abdul malik simon and edgar peterson in this book called new urban worlds and they call the south everywhere where the majority held vulnerability and i think this is hugely provocative right it's not about a place it's not about a thing it's not about post colonial india versus whatever it's where the majority holds vulnerability because it takes something socially to make the majority vulnerable right because then there's questions seriously of the consequences of inequality 
So I think we're very much in this. I think we misrecognize the vulnerability of our majority. I think we have, as an elite, really told ourselves stories we want to believe about how it's not true. Um, and it makes us, it makes us then as a society see the outcomes we see like evictions and be able to rationalize. Yes, I I agree. I think it's our biases, our classism, our you know, bias towards the formal over the informal that, you know, move all these issues to the periphery of our imagination of, you know, what a city actually should be. Um, thank you so much, uh, Gautam. It was a real pleasure having this conversation with you. And I think we've touched upon some issues that are very important and, you know, that our audience would uh, definitely, you know, want to dwell upon. So uh, thank you. Not at all. Thanks for having me. So uh, please tune in next week uh, to another podcast and we'll be discussing another book a week. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Do not miss to like, share and subscribe to our podcast. Available on all your favorite podcast apps.